0: Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Dadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey. This month, we're talking about Passover. It's a week away as we record this, so we're going to be focusing on our favorite rituals, texts, foods, and more. I have to confess that I have been immersed in other life things happening and therefore was quite shocked a week ago when I got an email that was like, Pesach is less than two weeks away. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I really need this conversation to jumpstart all of my planning. So I'm really excited to chat with you all about this. All right, so let us begin with some Passover rituals that are favorites of ours. These can be like technical rituals that many people may take part in, or it could be your own personal, family, or community rituals. I'm so interested in hearing what makes Pesach special for you all. Mimi, tell me
1: about a favorite ritual. As I was thinking about tonight's episode, I I realized. I have favorites that are like the things that my heart yearns for that I may not always get in a Seder experience, but that are actually like really important to me. When this part comes up, I realize, oh yeah, I really like this. What I mean in the Seders that I've gone to, especially now with little kids, it's, I'd say half and half, half finish the Seder after the meal and the other half, like the meal Ends and I'm upstairs putting kids to sleep, or just like nobody rejoins, and so my heart most desires and loves Hallel at the end of the seder. So after the meal, you do Birkat Hamazon and then you have Hallel. I just really love ending this long experience of the seder with singing. I love the songs that I've Hallel, the tunes that are sung at Passover. But I don't always get it. And I think that's part of what makes it so special for me. So then when I was thinking about, all right, well, what are the things that we always do make sure to hit? Of course, I was thinking earlier in the Seder, before eating a meal with bread, it's not my tradition or custom to, um, or not my practice, rather, to wash hands. So I actually really like in a Seder setting when you go around and wash each other's hands for one or both of the ritual hand-washings. Especially if you're in a crowd with people who you don't necessarily know, I like the part where you wash one another's hands. It's like a nice sort of like, who are you? And let's like embody this ritual together. So those are my two rituals, one I hunger for and one I appreciate.
2: I don't think I've ever been at a seder with mutual hand-washing. Really? Like where it wasn't just everybody go line up at the sink.
1: That's. I feel like that's the norm in my community. That's really interesting. Tamar, what about you? Do you?
0: So when I was growing up, the norm at our Seder was that like one child would go to the men and wash. This is so weird. This is not the way I grew up (laughs) up otherwise. This was what we did. Would go to the men and like wash their hands. So it would be like a kid holding a bowl and then the man would like take the, washing cup and wash his hands over the bowl. And the child would go from mad to man, why did we do this? <laughs> and um, that was it. When I was little and we went to my grandmother's house for Seder, nobody else washed. Then I guess when my family started hosting, then we would all go to the kitchen or sometimes maybe a bowl would be passed around. I'm not even sure. It's kind of a while ago. But I have been at seders where people wash each other's. It's just logistically, it's really complicated because you need to have like a bunch of bowls or you keep having to refill the water. Like it's complicated to do, but I do like the idea of it. But I am definitely like team, like everybody just get up and wash your hands. <laughs> no. Yeah. Which especially in the age of COVID, it's like. Right
1: never a bad idea. <laughs> I guess when I mean wash one another's hands, I do sort of more mean like you hold the bowl for the person next to you and then you pass it. But you have to often refill the hand washing cup with the discarded water. <laughs> I don't know how kosher that is. But but I like the
2: concept though in the same way that you fill each other's wine glasses. Right. Yeah.
1: So Hava, what about you? What are rituals you
2: want to highlight? I took a minute with this one because I think, despite the Seder being full of these symbolic actions, I don't find any of them individually that exciting. I wonder if it's because I I think of them as sort of the things that, you know, children know about, and it's not how I relate to the Seder as an adult. But I think one thing that I know I've spoken about on this podcast in the past is the way in my family of origin, the Idea of leading a Seder is like a fairly small deal because everybody says everything
0: out loud together in unison. And Zahava, I just want you to know that since you told us that this is the thing that you do, I think about you at our Seder all the time. And how <laughs> absolutely chaotic it would be <laughs> if we were to enact that in our house. And not only do I think about that, but sometimes my partner brings it up and he'll be like can you imagine if we were at Zahaba's house right now? <laughs> so I just want you to know that your fame has really grown. I yeah. love that this is family lore now.
2: <laughs> well, but this is the practice in my family, who I sadly will not be spending off with this year. So I don't have the prospect of this particular ritual this year, but I do think of it as a ritual, right? That we have this very ritualized way of reciting the entire text of the Haggadah, that there's a certain tune and rhythm and moments that have emphasis and the rise and the fall and things that don't even have particular logic, but just somehow these two words have gotten randomly emphasized over the years and now we always yell them. And just the way that's happened as a family experience and I don't know, a moment of togetherness and a way that the Seder really is this family experience for me. And I think... You know, some people have a a small version of this where even if your standard practice on a regular holiday or Shabbat is to have one person say Kiddush at the meal, a lot of people do, I think, the Kiddush at the beginning out loud in unison. A lot of people who don't usually have that as a holiday practice do at the Seder. Just imagine extending that to the entire text of the Haggadah, and that is what my family does. So that's the ritual that I really think of as my favorite more than dipping anything or crunching anything or leaning anything, that it's really about the the way we recite.
0: I like it. As I've said, we've (laughs) we've brought the idea of it into our house and then (laughs) deemed ourselves incapable of managing that. (laughs) My ritual is a pre-Pesach ritual. We have a close family friend who comes in from out of town. This, I guess, will be the 10th year that she has come in, although I guess 2 years minus 2 because of covid we do a pretty big carpas spread so that people are not super hungry for the meal throughout magid one of the things that uh, my friend andrea introduced us to was making pickles so the night before the seder we all make pickles together and we we pickle our own vegetables and Andrea is like a real expert at this. I honestly just watch. I don't even really participate. It's really something that she does with the kids. But I know it's very random, but it's also like very specific. And it means that we have these like really delicious homemade pickles that everybody is noshing on during the Seder. And it just feels super Jewish and super fun. And I know that we could make pickles at any time in the year, but we don't. We only make them the night before the Seder. And mm. then, you know, there's like a lot of like tasting and adjusting the day of the first Seder. It's not religious, but it is like just, that's the moment where it's like, oh my gosh, it's really happening. We're making the pickles. That's really an important moment for me. And that usually happens like after we've been like cooking our butts off all day and we just did biddy kat mates and we're tired and we're all like really excited about the fact that we're going to go like sit on the front stoop and like drink a beer or have some whiskey as our like last thing before Pesach. So it's like an exciting moment. And so Karpas appropriate because what is a pickle
2: if not a vegetable immersed in salt water? Uh Exactly.
0: Although I was just thinking as I was saying this, like, oh, it's so Pesach appropriate. And then I was like, in Hebrew, pickle is chamutzim which comes from the same root as chametz (laughs) because pickles are fermented and dough ferments, but pickles don't rise, so it's fine. Um, (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard anybody say the sentence, pickles don't rise, before, and that's a
2: first (laughs) Congratulations, listeners. You've had a unique experience.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, now let's move on to the very conventional. I'm really curious about um, texts that really speak to you all this year or any year, the, the texts that you really look forward to? I
2: chose a text, ironically, given what I just said, I chose a text that is not actually in the standard Haggadah, but it is an outside text that I like to bring in during the Seder. And this is one that I've, uh, that I've used multiple years now, so I feel like it's become part of my Seder liturgy sometimes at least. That is selections from Rav Shamjan Raphael Hirsch's commentary on Exodus chapter one about the way the oppression of the Jewish people progressed from Geirut, foreignness, to Avdut, servitude, to Enoi, suffering. And I'll say, I think when you're looking for modern Haggadahs or um, things that are more accessible, you often find texts that are not actually about the Jews in Egypt, right? It's, you know, let's expand this theme to the plight of refugees in modern day or, you know, talk about the civil rights movement or lots of different things that expand the scope. And that's something that I appreciate and respect, but not actually what I want to do with my Seder. But what I really like about this text is the way it makes the slavery in Egypt modern and relatable for me while still making it about the slavery in Egypt. So, There's a lot of commentary in Rav Hirsch's commentary on the Torah on Exodus 1, as you might imagine, and this is selections that I've pulled from a bunch of different verses in that chapter. So I'll just, I'll read, you know, the version that already has my ellipses in it, if that's cool. Yeah, please. At first, the Jews were regarded as a source of revenue from which the state was to wring as much profit as possible. After all, they were aliens of foreign origin who could be made to pay any price for the very air that they breathed. And for this reason, they were placed under the jurisdiction of the treasury. The labor tax did not achieve its objective. The more the Egyptians tried to weaken the Jews, the more they increased and spread, and the cruel treatment now reached a second stage. Until now, burdens were imposed upon them as upon foreigners by means of official decrees, according to the law of the land. Now they were declared to be slaves. Foreignness was followed by servitude. The first taxes were extracted from them as citizens of the country, They still retained their rights, but they had to pay a special labor tax for the right to citizenship. In the next stage, they were stripped of their rights and were degraded in the eyes of the Egyptian people by being turned into slaves, creatures unprotected by law. Now, a third stage was added. The Egyptians made life bitter for them. One can be a slave and be forced to form hard labor and yet not be exposed to wanton abuse. But we are told that the Egyptians embittered the lives of the Jews in twofold measure— They purposely assigned each slave a task that was incompatible with his abilities in order to crush their strength with the labor. In addition to this malicious harshness, which kept the slave laborer from taking pleasure in any of his work, they embittered the lives of the Jews with ingenious torments. At the root of this unspeakable abuse was gerut foreignness, the mistaken notion that a stranger has no rights. Hence, to this very day, the Torah's laws concerning the rights of the stranger offer a striking contrast. The stranger is placed under special protection of the law. The degree of justice in a country is measured not by the rights according to the native-born, the rich, and the well-connected, whose connections stand by them and represent them in the hour of need, but by the justice meted out to the unprotected stranger. So I really appreciate this because I think its modern resonance is really clear, but it's also very deeply rooted in the specific text of Exodus, even if you read further in the commentary also connected back to the specific text in Genesis where God promises Abraham that this will happen to his descendants. So for me, this is a, a very powerful distillation of themes that you might already be thinking about and feeling and what it might mean to say, you know, you should view yourself as though you came out of Egypt and, and how we can have a modern relationship with this idea. So that's a text that I've enjoyed and valued bringing to my Seder for the last several years.
0: Hmm. I love that. Could you um, share a link to a document where you have apparently already had that written out so that our listeners can access that if they'd like? Well, it is in my
2: family customized Haggadah for the Seder that we're hosting this year for my husband's extended family. So I think I can make it public on Safaria, which is where I composed it. So I'll figure out how to link to it and people can see the entire custom Haggadah that I made, if you're so inclined. Cool. Amazing. I'm so excited for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mimi, what about you? What is the text that you get excited about on Pesach?
1: There's a poem my family reads in the CCAR. That's the Reform uh, Movement's Haggadah. It's called It Came to Pass at Midnight. It's a poem based on based on another poem called It Happened at Midnight by a sixth-century rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) And this poem, well, first I'll give you a little background why it's important to me. So growing up, my grandmother on my mom's side was not Jewish, but we all lived in the same house. So she came to the Seder as she came to many Shabbat meals. Mm -hmm. We did, as many families do, except for the Stadlers, person by person. (laughs) You pass each paragraph, but this poem whenever it came up we would it would go to my grandmother one of the things that's really resonant is that i hear it in her voice and remember sort of like that honor of giving her this poem that she loved so much that was sort of all it meant to me and now actually the poem is about there were uh, i think i've read a little bit more but there were 12 miracles that occurred and and the text is specific to tell us that they happened at midnight throughout Jewish text. One of them was the redemption from Egypt. The poem isn't afraid of talking about how the middle of the night is also very scary and that it's actually important that redemption comes not in like the light of day but in that really scary place of the darkest part of the night. I think this year I've had lots of worries popping up and actually like physically waking me up in the middle of the night. And this year, as I was also pulling readings for, actually for a little friend Seder, not on the first or second night, I remembered this poem and I went back and read it. I just loved it. I'll read a few stanzas The third line of each stanza, you all say together. So imagine that. And imagine it in the voice of like a really sweet Catholic lady. (laughs) (laughs) All the earth was sunk in night when God said, let there be light. Thus the day was formed from midnight. So was primal man redeemed when the light of reason gleamed through the darkness of the midnight. To the patriarch, God revealed the true faith so long concealed by the darkness of the midnight. But this truth was long obscured by the slavery endured in the Black Egyptian Midnight. It goes on. There are many more stanzas. I'll I'll link to it. I feel like I didn't read the best parts of it. But that's my, my text that I'm excited about this year. I love that. That's great. I can't wait to look it up and
0: read the full text. Me too. Yeah. I have two. I think I have already recommended one of these on this podcast many years ago. But it is a letter called To My Old Master. And it is a letter that was written by a person who was enslaved in the United States and escaped to freedom during the Civil War. And after the Civil War, the person who had enslaved him found out where he was and sent him a letter and asked if he wanted to come back and work for him. The letter is just an incredible piece of literature. It's a page and a half long. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a highlight. As to my freedom, which you say I can have, there's nothing to be gained on that score as I got my free papers in 1864 from the promost Marshal General of the Department of Nashville. Mandy says she would be afraid to go back without some proof that you were disposed to treat us justly and kindly, and we have concluded to test your sincerity by asking you to send us our wages for the time we served you. This will make us forget and forgive old scores and rely on your justice and friendship in the future. I served you faithfully for 32 years and Mandy 20 years. At $25 a month for me and $2 a week for Mandy, our earnings would amount to $11,680. Add to this the interest for the time our wages have been kept back and deduct what you paid for our clothing and three doctor's visits to me and pulling a tooth for Mandy and the balance will show what we are in justice entitled to. Please send the money by Adams Express and care of V. Winters Esquire, Dayton, Ohio. If you fail to pay us for faithful labors in the past, we can have little faith in your promises in the future. We trust the good maker has opened your eyes to the wrongs which you and your fathers have done to me and my fathers in making us toil for you generations without recompense. Here I draw my wages every Saturday night, but in Tennessee there is never any payday for the Negroes any more than for the horses and cows. Surely there will be a day of reckoning for those who defraud the laborer of his hire. It goes on from there, but it's so incredible. Just reading it now, every time I read it, I get like chills all over my whole body. It's just an incredible thing. It's wild to think about the fact that the slavery that we talk about was very real in North America and the United States not that long ago at all. And this letter really brings that home. To me, reading that letter is a highlight of my gate every year. And the other thing is that my satyrs, instead of a traditional Hallel, we we read a bunch of poetry. One poem that we read that my friend Andrea, who um, also makes the, the pickles with us, Andrea always reads this poem, which is called Praise the Contrary and Its Defenders by a woman named Sue Swartz. It's also quite long, so I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read the first like few lines of it. For the chief musician on Common Instrument, A Song of Rebellion, praise rising up, praise unlawful assembly, praise the road of excess and the palace of wisdom, praise glass houses, praise the hand that cradles the stone, praise refusal of obedience, praise Galileo, praise acceleration, praise bombshells, praise en masse, praise sit down strikes, praise outside agitators and inside jobs, praise Red Emma, praise her gun, praise living your life, Praise Joan of Arc. Praise wayward daughters. Praise their wayward sons. Praise the power of indulgence. It goes on like that for quite some time. It's like the the repetition of the word praise is like propulsive and it just feels like it's moving you forward. And there's some things in it where you're like, why are we praising that? Like for some reason, Newt Gingrich is in here and it's like, <laughs> what? Um, but it's really, it's just amazing. It really makes me feel... It just makes me feel something really intensely in a way that I crave in the Seder. And so I'll link to it as well. I don't know anything about the poet. It's the only poem I think I know by her, but it is uh, really an important part of my Seder. So I'm excited to share it. That is great. And I feel like the Seder is an underappreciated
2: treasure trove of poetry and can be. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Great. So I know our next category is food. Tamar, I think you should go first for food. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So the food that I'm going to recommend is not a Seder food. I mean, you can, of course, have it at your Seder. It's delicious. But this is a great food for when it's like end of Pesach and you're like, I'm sick of Pesach food. I really want to eat something that does not taste like Pesach. There is an almond cookie cake from Malia. Also sometimes has hazelnut flour, but I've made it with just almond flour and it is delicious. It somehow tastes exactly like a chocolate chip cookie. Like it doesn't taste like Pesach in any way. It's so yummy. It's also super easy. Like you can put it together in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. And you just feel like something that tastes normal <laughs> is so comforting at the end of Pesach, especially when it's like, oh, man, there's three more days of this. Like, how am I going to handle it? Having something like this is really wonderful. I will link to it in the show notes. But if you're trying to Google it, it's called Hazelnut Plus Almond Flour Chocolate Chip Cookie Cake from Molly Yeah, whose website is MyNameIsYeh.com. So I highly recommend that one. Mimi,
1: what do you have for us? I have not found the perfect recipe for this, so I will have to report back. But one of my favorite Seder foods is a Yemenite charoset. I recently posted in a Facebook group that Tamara is part of looking for a recipe for this. A Yemenite charoset is tangy and spicy, so we've got Cumin, some cracked black pepper, cinnamon and other traditional Ashkenaz or ubiquitous haroset spices, and a ton of dried fruit and nuts. So it's really sticky, more mortar-like than your typical Ashkenazi charoset. I'm really excited. I love it. Oh, I missed pomegranate molasses is a very important ingredient. That's one of the foods that I get I also get really excited about for the Seder. And then I want to recommend to everybody deviled eggs as a way to change your egg routine. If you do a lot of eggs during Passover, I just love deviled eggs and could gobble up way more of those than my stomach actually wants me to gobble up. That's a great idea, actually.
0: All right, Zahaba, what
1: about you? I make those almond cookies
0: that you um, recommended years ago, like every year. So I'm, I'm, Excited to hear uh, more recommendations. I would totally re-recommend
2: those almond cookies. We can reshare the recipe for them this year. I think I endorsed them on the podcast. Based on the year of email that I found them in my email when I was making them this year, I think I endorsed them on the podcast in 2016. Guys, we've been doing this for a while. <laughs> we really um, have. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. So those are Ricciarelli di Siena, which according to my family memory were originally in the New York Times, though I've not found them again online. They're an almond-based cookie with orange zest in them. And I think they have like the biggest gap of appetizing look versus actual deliciousness of anything else (laughs) that I make because they're not attractive (laughs) as cookies, but they are very good. I could eat tons of them. I have already made them for this year. They are in the freezer. At the Seder food... That I'm going to recommend that I have not yet made for this year, but plan to that I just got my mom to send me the recipe for is a very simple apple matza kugel. I do not make kugel during the year. I'm not like a kugel baker. For one thing, I have like 9,000 other ways to eat carbs in my life. But there's something very satisfying about soaking matza to the point that it bears no resemblance to matzah. And then it basically just becomes like, kind of like, stuffing on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. There's a a very simple recipe of like soaked soft matzah, beaten eggs, some honey, some melted oil or margarine or butter, depending on your dairy situation, some cinnamon nutmeg. Uh, You can put in chopped walnuts if you want. My family doesn't usually bother, but it's in the recipe. And then peeled and chopped apples and some golden raisins. And all of that just together. Basically, it's like If you have like an apple luktion kugel during the year, like a noodle kugel with apples and raisins in it, it's like that, except like a stuffing casserole of apple raisin kugel. And it's very warm and comforting and, you know, unseasonally harvesty. But I (laughs) find it to be like a really good Pesach food in that it is literally made out of matzah, but does not remind me of matzah at all.
0: Mm, Key key component yep wait i have an idea though this is kind of a wild card that i'm throwing at you right now but it's time for us to end one pesach food once and for all each of us gets to choose one (laughs) that gets just absolutely erased from history do you have something on your list farfall yes The correct answer. (laughs) Farfel. (laughs) Who thought that
2: was a good idea? Yeah. Matzah farfel is not cornflakes, everyone.
0: Just let it go. It's terrible. So my mom used to make these cookies that were cookies made with masa farfel. And the idea was they were kind of supposed to be like oatmeal cookies. I don't know why. They were like big, like hockey puck sized matzo so farfel in them so they looked crazy and like the first day after you made them they could be kind of good although it was still too much like it was crazy it was a crazy amount of cookie but after that they're hard as a rock yeah I mean you could really knock someone out if you threw one of these at them <laughs> it was just like why are we doing this we've suffered enough
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, <you> know. <laughs> okay Mimi what about you what are you getting rid of the one that comes to mind, even after some deep searching, everybody knows that this should be canceled, but it's the jarred gefilte fish with the gel. Yes. Some people really like mm-hmm. the ones with the gel. I know. I can't get into that. Mm-mm. Yeah. One
0: time when I worked at My Jewish Learning, I ran a column called Ask the Expert, mm-hmm. and somebody wrote into Ask the Expert because they wanted to know if the jar of gefilte fish that they found in their cabinet was still good. (laughs) (laughs) Still one of the funniest questions I've ever answered, but I, like, called Manischewitz and found out that, in fact, their jar of gefilte fish was good for three more years.
2: (laughs) (laughs) False. Their jar of gefilte fish was never good.
0: (laughs) Exactly. all right. Well, I'm glad that we've settled these things once a pearl. all. Wait, what about you? It's just farful for you. I mean, I'm. I agree with both of you. And listen, like my mother's memory is very much a blessing, but those cookies are not. You know, i haba with her. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um. Not <so> much. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, That's a no for me. All right. Our final category of recommendations before we get to just our, our random recommendations, um, is our wild card, our pesach theme wild card. So tell us what uh, what is something that we haven't already discussed that you need to recommend for others for Pesach. So have a hit me, not with a cookie. <laughs> I'm going to, for my wild card
2: pick, I'm going to go with seeing Sfirad Omer the seven-week counting process that starts on the second night of Pesach and lasts until the holiday of Shavuot, I'm going to suggest using it as a moment for reviving any New Year's resolutions, self-improvement intentions that have gone by the wayside in in the first half of the year. So I think Pesach is, is just over the halfway point since Rosh Hashanah. So the Jewish year is just over half over. And the run-up to Pesach is so busy and high stress that it is very likely that any well-meaning intentions you had about self-care or self-improvement or fill-in-the-blank resolution-y thing has probably fallen away, if not months ago, than in the last couple of weeks as you've been doing your Pesach preparation. The process of counting the Omer really suggests itself for reviving whatever it is, because first of all, famously, it's counting up rather than counting down. So it's not just about anticipation for Shavuot. It's also counting, you know, from one to 49 and building up towards something and building up towards readiness to receive the Torah in traditional violence. But th- that that also suggests itself as some form of growth or restoration automatically And there's also already a daily practice encoded where you're remembering to do this thing every evening. It just sets itself up perfectly for some kind of ritualized thing in your life that you're remembering to do or think about or feel or be. I'm not saying that this is something that I've taken extensive advantage of in the past, but it's something I'm thinking about for this year. And I think of Sphira as only sort of vaguely being a Pesach custom, the counting of the Omer, but Pesach is its kickoff and also its kickoff on the second night when you're through the big, and uh, towards the end of the second Seder. So you are through the big Seder push and now you have some space to think about your next personal Jewish priority and so I'm going to make a plug for making Sefira, the seven weeks of counting the vehicle for bringing back whatever it is you've lost track of this year.
0: I like it, but I feel like the problem with Sphera is the whole, if you miss a day, you're out. Because it's like, first of all, more often than not, we forget to count on the first night. So then I'm just never even in. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, you don't do it the first night. Like, it's not already in your brain. I mean, it's not in mine. So it's like hard for me to remember that first night. We just often forget it. And so then I feel like if you really are trying to like rebuild something, but there's an automatic, like, if you're out, you're out. Then it's like,
1: it's too easy to get out and stay out. So it's really like, if you forget, then you can't count the next night or next day? No, you, so I'm, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in a plug for counting anyway.
2: Okay. I think, okay, so if you forget, then you can't count with the blessing. Because there's this concept that the blessing attaches to the practice, the mitzvah as a whole, and that... If you've missed 1 49th of it, then you're no longer participating in the practice as a whole. But that is only sort of the the being careful frame. Like, we don't want to accidentally say a whole bunch of invalid blessings. And so in case the opinion that this is actually one commandment with 49 parts is the right one, then you would be saying a whole bunch of invalid blessings if you kept saying the blessing. But there is still the opposite opinion that these are actually 49 separate mitzvot in which case you should absolutely keep saying it every day just without the blessing to cover all your bases. So I feel like the gamification of the Omer has kind of infected the way people think about it. It's like, are you still in? I'm still in. Whoa, who's still going? Which I totally do. I was going to say, you're always
0: still in, though. (laughs) (laughs) That is not true.
2: I've had a mixed bag over the years. But I do think that if if you let like losing the game actually knock you out of the practice, then you're missing both a technical and a spiritual opportunity.
0: Fair. And also, I had no idea that that's why you can get out after missing the bracha. So I just learned something. Thank you so much, Sahava All right, Mimi, what is your wild card?
1: I'm going to recommend to everybody that you go outside at one point in your Seder. This is something that well, obviously, the season is changing, and that is miraculous in and of itself. I think that we talk a lot about springtime in the Seder, and there's like spring imagery with the carpas and eggs. Anyway, but I think when you open the door for Elijah, that everybody should go outside, or even like at a break in the meal, let's say you have finished your meal and you're gonna look for the afikomen, or the kids are gonna look for the afikomen. I want to recommend that you sort of break out of the room, move around, and go outside. It really changes the energy, gives everybody another wind. I love that. That is very smart. Simple way to recharge your seder, everyone. And whose seder can use
0: recharging, honestly? How about you, tomorrow? What's your wild card? Ugh, man, I'm really struggling with this one. I think that my wild card is a ritual that we do for... Elijah's cup, which is instead of having a cup that's full of wine the whole time, we all go around and pour a little bit of wine from our cup into Elijah's cup. And the idea is basically like, okay, if you want redemption, you got to work for it. You got to like give of yourself for it. There's something about that that feels really meaningful to me. The flip side of that is in the Haggadah that we use, which we made on Haggadah.com, which everybody should use to make your own Haggadah. There's a text in our Haggadah from an Iraqi family where when they pour out wine for the 10 plagues, the father would actually go into the bathroom and pour wine into the toilet and then close the toilet and flush it. And that was the pouring out wine. And it was the idea was like, this wine that we're pouring out for the Egyptians, it's like so powerful. It's so intense. The bad thing that happened to them was so intense that we need to like fully get rid of it. The idea that like we need to fully get rid of the kind of like essence of the plagues and that we need to all contribute wine for Elijah's cup feels really meaningful to me and is not something that I've ever encountered in any other seder. So I really love doing that. That is a great concept. Yeah, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Thanks.
1: I wrote that one down. I'm gonna do it. Awesome.
0: I'll link to at least one text about those. Okay, this has been so fun and has done the job of getting me really excited about Pesach this year. But now we're onto our just like regular run-of-the-mill endorsements. If you have something to recommend that isn't Pesach or is if because you're just so super-duper ready now is the time. Zahava, would you like to go first? Sure. I hope this isn't like too much of
2: a downer, um, but I'm going to share what I think is a really beautiful poem about grief. There are a couple of significant people in my life and family whose anniversary of their passing falls right around off. And so I'm thinking of some people and I was remembering this year, a poem that I encountered earlier in the year that I thought was really wonderful about grief. Um, and I don't know where it was originally published. Um, it was shared on Twitter by the British poet Nikita Gill, who shares others' poetry on her Twitter feed, which is really wonderful. This is a poem by the American poet Rosemary watola Traumer, and it's called Watching My Friend Pretend Her Heart Isn't Breaking. On Earth, just a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh six billion tons. Six billion tons equals the collective weight of every animal on Earth, including the insects, times three. Six billion tons sounds impossible until I consider how it is to swallow grief. Just a teaspoon, and one might as well have consumed a neutron star. How dense it is, how it carries inside it the memory of collapse. How difficult it is to move, then. How impossible to believe that anything could lift that weight. There are many reasons to treat each other with great tenderness. One is the sheer miracle that we are here together on a planet surrounded by dying stars. One is that we cannot see what anyone else has swallowed.
0: That's beautiful. Mm
1: -hmm. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? Oh, wow, that's a tough act to follow, but I will try. This is very light, but in the depths of parenting young children and trying to get them ready for Passover but without like day school to sort of do a lot of that for us. There's a series of videos which I'll link to from BimBom on YouTube and it goes through like what to expect in the Seder which for my three and a half year old has been, it, we've watched it a few times and talked about it and he really wants to know. It's better for him when he knows what to expect. Surprises are not good for three-and-a-half-year-olds in my experience. Also, there's a pretty charismatic guy who sings a few highlight songs. So that's been on repeat for us, and I'm really hoping that it sort of plants the seeds that make the cedar more engaging and familiar for him.
0: I love that. Awesome. I think I'm, like, just now at the age where my younger kid, like, kind of knows what to expect from the Seder, which is nice. I am going to endorse a book that I just read called Being Human by Judith Human. Judith Human, of blessed memory, was uh, an incredible disability activist, and she died recently. Her memoir is called Being Human. A human is spelled H-E-U-M-A-N-N. She talks about being a part of the leadership of the disability sit-in in in San Francisco in the 70s, and of the work that brought about the ADA, and just an incredible amount of disability rights in the world that we live in now is really directly linked to work that Judy Heumann and her friends did together. She's, She's just an incredible person. The book is super fascinating. She grew up in Brooklyn. Her parents were both refugees from World War II. She learned Hebrew because she had polio and she was in a wheelchair and public school was not available to disabled kids when she was a child. And so somebody told her mom that she could go to Jewish school if she learned Hebrew. So she had to learn Hebrew. And then when they took her to Jewish school, the school was like, oh, no. But she she went to Hebrew school her whole childhood. She eventually was able to attend school. She writes a lot about the incredible sit-in that really changed disability rights in this country. And one of the things that I did not know about it, but that I learned from her book is that it was during Pesach. The sit-in began during Pesach and she and her friends who were Jewish and were at the sit-in. There was 150 people, and a number of them were Jewish. They had a Shabbat meal in an elevator in the San Francisco Federal Building as part of their sit-in. She talks a fair amount about her Jewish experience throughout the book, and it's just so, so interesting. She's such an incredible person with an incredible life story. I really recommend her autobiography, but if you are interested in any of this, I also recommend the documentary Crip Camp, which is on Netflix, in which she's a central character and is just a fantastic documentary, as well as there's two different episodes, at least two, maybe three episodes, of drunk history about disability rights. And one of them is about specifically the sit-in, and one of them is more specifically about her. And they're both excellent and super funny. So if you are okay with profanity and drunk history, those episodes are also super fun. And I've just been thinking so much about the kind of like liberation that she brought to the world and how meaningful it is, both in the wake of her death and also because we're coming to a time of thinking about our own liberation and just thinking about people who have like really actively done that work in their life. is so inspiring to me at this time of the year. So being human or really anything about Judy Human and her life. Amazing. All right. Well, This was such a fun conversation and really did make me feel excited about Pesach, even though I'm not traditionally a Pesach lover. Um, So I'm excited that that this had that effect. I hope it had that effect on all of you. And thank you all so much for listening. And uh, extra thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. We'd also love to hear what you'd like us to talk about on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which makes sure that we can bring you more episodes every month. Zahava, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Mimi, thank you. Thank you. Happy Passover. Happy Passover. I will see you both next month.